Welcome to the Who Knows This podcast, where I track down in-the-trenches experts to answer questions that we all want the answers to. I'm Sam Visnick, and I'm a veteran and working with people with chronic aches and pains by the way of massage therapy, exercise, pain education, hypnotherapy, and lifestyle education. Today, we're going to talk about optimal training and mindset for endurance sports. So let's get started. All right, I'm going to read a quick bio here so that you know who we're chatting with. Today, I've got Tim Lucho Wagner. And Lucho started running at the age of 10 and went on to multiple Kansas State track and field championships and also a two-time All-American in college. He decided to drop out after two years and travel, eventually settling in the Virgin Islands, where he lived for four years. Interesting story here. Tired of the party lifestyle, he quit smoking and entered his first triathlon and placed third. So fast forward, and four years later, he placed 16th overall at the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii and was the top amateur. After 15 Ironmans and beginning a family, Lucho switched to running, and he ran 2.41 in his first marathon and 2.30 in his second. Eventually, Lucho and his wife moved up to the mountains and led him to try ultra-marathon running. So in his first race, a 50-mile trail race, he won and broke the course record. He went on to place sixth at the Leadville 100, his fourth-ever ultra. To top it off, Lucho was the overall winner of the Leadman Series in 2012, which includes all of the Leadville races. He now spends his time raising his two sons, coaching athletes, and training for Masters Track and Field Racing. He is a vastly popular and sought-after coach. I'm happy to have him on this episode to chat about a lot of different topics that I'm sure you'll be interested in. So let's get started. All right, Tim, welcome. And thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah, yeah. We got a lot of stuff to talk about here. And, and in particular, those of you out there, uh, you listen to in the bio, uh, we talked with, uh, I told you a little bit about Tim, uh, commonly known as Lucho, has a very interesting history about getting into uh, the endurance work. And uh, I found that a pretty humorous, uh, you know, intro or bio that you have, uh, having kind of like not not looking like you were an athlete from the get go, kind of having stopped smoking and so forth, and getting into endurance. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how that started. Yeah, just one of those deviations in life responsibility. I dropped out of college, um, had a scholarship to a D one track program, and just burned out and left ended up traveling a whole bunch for probably four years, um, ended up on an island in the Caribbean, um, was a smoker, bartender, really unhealthy. Um, and a guy uh, that I was roofing for, we had a big hurricane, shut down all the bars, roofs were destroyed. So I started roofing. That guy ended up being a triathlete, um, asked me if I wanted to try a triathlon. So I did. And that was it. I got hooked. Like the addictive personality, which I've kind of looked at a lot, um, and how that correlates with one addict, different types of addictions. So I quit smoking, quit drinking, and just switched over to running and biking and swimming if I have to. How <laughs> old were you when this happened? Twenty-four. So at twenty-four. So. Did you feel you still had, I mean, during the time that you had done this transition, were you still active and, and being fit or were you just working and, and just roofing and not doing any training? Doing nothing. Interesting. So you yeah. just had picked up, that sounded like a, a fun or interesting thing to do and you went for it. So yeah. what happened at your first race? How well did you do? I got third. 
never really swam before, not competitive, like swim, swim, you know, I'd spent several years living on an island in the Caribbean. So you do get proficient at being in the water. Um, just faked my way through it. Couldn't breathe. My lungs were horrible. And I remember pointedly that that really frustrated me, um, that I'd seen how far I'd fallen from being a D1 track runner to now gasping for breath on us. It was a sprint. It was like a two mile run. Uh, really frustrated me and drove me to, to pursue that. I think that was part of the addiction there was becoming like the challenge of getting myself back. Would you consider yourself kind of a naturally gifted? I mean, to get to a D1 ability, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have some good genetics, but do, uh, yeah. how do you rate yourself in terms of how, you know, how great your genetics are for, for doing endurance sports? Yeah, I think there's multiple layers to what you would say is genetics. There's like a physiological, like your femur to tibia ratio is perfect. Your knees are not bowed. Like these little physiological genetic abilities, but mine, I've said it a million times, mine lies in my durability, just my ability to work really hard and not break down, just pummel myself with hard work. Um, but then I think the real genetic ability that matters and it's not always genetic. There's a nurture versus nature aspect here, but it's the mental part. And I had that. Did you have that before? Or do you feel like that, that, that has improved over time? I always had the, the, the craving for challenge and seeking out discomfort. It's my favorite saying, seek discomfort and enjoying it, the enjoying struggle and enjoying adversity and challenge and suffering. <laughs> that's and that's something that we're I want to talk about a lot more here as as we go because in particular I'm always interested in in how people internally respond to the messages that their bodies are giving them and in particular knowing when and having a feedback loop inside to know when to stop versus when to push through it and you know what the consequences may have have been mm -hmm. as a result of those different things in particular in my work I always find that there's two different camps of people uh, that when people come to me with chronic pain issues is do I need to, to get them to put the brakes on because they're, they're pushing too hard and they're not listening to their body. And then on the opposite end, it's people that I need to get them to put the foot on the gas mm -hmm. pedal because yeah. they're too apprehensive and they're, they're, they're a little bit too sensitive to, you know, uh, any messages that their body's giving them and not learning to, to move through that. So there's a real fine balance there. And, and I think yeah. that, um, that becomes really interesting when we are talking about different populations, like for example, in my population, there's definitely a lot of active people, but there's a lot of sedentary people. So pushing through in terms of getting people to learn how to lift properly, do basic squats and so forth. And that is very different in, in terms of a context than people that are out running, putting lots of mileage yeah. on their body and doing tons of training, which is clearly far more aggressive. Um, and again, the mindset still is, is needs to be the same in those two different contexts, right? Yes and no. Um, if you have the durability to handle that, that aggressive training style, then that's where you're going to thrive. And there, there's definitely different personality types. There are people who are risk averse. Um, and in terms of neurotyping, I don't know if you've heard of Christian Thibodeau. 
Yep. He talks about that. So the, the type three is the, the risk averse endurance athlete. The type one is the light me on fire and let's do max squats today, you know? Um, and so I think you have to really feel out the person and find their personality and then see if what their goals are matches up with what their body can do. Um, and so like with me, I had the mindset of, I want to work myself into the ground. And then I had the body, the bone structure, the tendons, the ligaments, all that stuff to handle it. And so it was this double edge, both these things are coming at me and I just was able to crush myself, which wasn't good in the end. So, and then, but you, you know, achieved success and the, the question, well, <laughs> all based upon your own perception of it. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> so my question is, is that, you know, with those two things, with the certain, and we're going to back up and go through yeah. that piece too, that, that neurotyping concept, but with that mentality that you had, and also that physical durability, how did your body hold up throughout that process? What was your experience of just grinding constantly? I ended up uh, almost like seeking out these different ways to hurt myself because nothing was hurting me like 40, 42 hour training weeks with, with intensity, with weightlifting, you know, 30 hours on a bike, just sitting on a bike throughout a week. And it never, never, I never got injured. I never broke down. Um, I would see warning signs that I was very good at ignoring rationalizing away like rest high resting heart rates um a little bit of sickness things like that but other than that i came through pretty unscathed just really tired that's amazing and so we're not talking we're talking about no episodes of tendonitis or muscle strain or nothing i, did have, I can i can tell you over the last 25 years the exact injuries i had and there's only a few of them one was an it band issue that I sort of trained through. One was an Achilles tendonitis that I trained through. One was a plantar fascia issue that I trained through. Um, I had a stress fracture in my tibia that I dropped my mileage from about, a, I was only running 120 to 140 mile weeks down to like 50. and was able to run through that. Um, and so very few of these injuries have ever like put me out. Um, I do appreciate these stories because that also is helpful for, again, people who, are, are afraid to just, you know, that's an extreme, right? But also these things didn't completely sideline you, meaning like you were, you were taken out of the mix. So when these things were occurring, were you seeking out medical advice? Were you working with physical therapists or chiropractors throughout these injuries? Uh, I was fortunate to still have one of my best friends as a physical therapist and an elite marathoner. He was, <clears throat> he was my sounding board. Like with the plantar fascia issue, it was really painful. And I asked him, what happens if I train through this? And he said, no heart. Like, that's, that's it. And I'm like, okay, good enough. Um, same with the Achilles tendon. He, he told me I had Ironman Hawaii coming up in, I don't remember, it was like eight weeks. He told me to wedge my heel and ice and try to scrape my soleus as much as I could every night. And so I continued on just in, in pain very, very fortunate. I wouldn't, I would never in a million years have one of my athletes do that. So, so, so what was your mentality around this? Is that once you essentially, or did you find that once you got the go ahead from your physical therapist friend, which obviously you trusted that mm -hmm. that gave you the green light to just ignore it and just move yeah. through it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the whole point of what I was doing was seeking discomfort and trying to push myself to my hardest levels. And so when you throw in something like an Achilles tendon issue, just throw it in the mix. Like I'm trying to do this anyway. Let's just make it harder. <laughs> and so in particular with that, so you, was it more of a game, would you say internally to feeling discomfort and sensory information from your body and you trying to maintain a state where you blocked it out? How did you interact with it in a way that got you through it? I don't know. That's like, I've never been asked that question. Um, I feel like it's, it's more, it's, it's, it's something that I just accept as being part of it. It's just what it is. So you didn't really have an emotional response to it. It was just like, this is what my body is giving me. That's normal. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much as long as it didn't inhibit performance, I was fine. So that's the interesting part that I have when it comes to, you know, with pain education and pain neuroscience and all of these mm -hmm. things that we teach is how do you take the information that your body is giving you and put it into the proper context? Now, one of the most important things that we have to help people overcome is understanding when they're not actually injuring themselves as a result right. of feeling pain and you know, being able to continue going. So that requires mm -hmm. obviously medical advice. So doctor saying, hey, no, this isn't broken or this isn't happening. But then also to be able to, how do you frame that? To number one, get your brain to go, this is information is not that important, or this information is par for the course. We talk about things like playing football, for example, or uh, demolition derby drivers, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> I love demolition derby. Amazing, right? So there's information about them, which, for example, on average, uh, demolition derby driver, an event, and those of you out there, demolition derby is, you know, cars crashing into each other in these fun <laughs> events. The average demolition derby driver gets into, what, 75 accidents per event, ish, I'm, I'm, this is a rough estimate, yeah. at an average of 24 miles an hour. Have you ever been hit at 24 miles an hour in a car? That's not a soft bump. And um, how many events do these demolition derby drivers drive in? Dozens. So by the end of this, if you look at the incidence of chronic pain amongst, in particular, neck issues and so forth and demolition derby drivers, it's staggeringly low. So what we say is when we look at this and say that the context in which the pain is occurring yeah. and the expectations of the nervous system and the brain to that environment oftentimes dictates the degree of chronic pain somebody might be suffering or, you know, they're going to have injuries, but they're going to heal and how their nervous system responds to pain. So in particular, I'm always interested in that when people repetitively are pushing themselves and they're getting information from their body, which for the average person might actually result in dealing with chronic pain issues. Mm -hmm. And then we have athletes that do stuff like what you do, and they don't seem to have these problems. Yeah, I, I, you said the expectation. And I think that that's a really huge part of it. It's, it's the difference between not knowing that something like stepping off a curb and torquing your knee versus running a bunch and your knee starts to hurt. Those are wildly different things. They could end up in the same state, but the expectation and then also the motivation. So you have to be motivated to selective, to choose selective pain, which is kind of what this is. It's you're selecting to kind of hurt. Um, and I, I feel like a majority of people go out of their way to avoid that. Like it's the entire society is formed around avoiding conflict and avoiding discomfort. Um, and I think that's very telling in, in terms of, of just where we are as a society.
and I, I'll go off on a rant on that. But um, yeah, I think I think we have to choose to struggle in this day and age in 2021 versus 60, 70 years ago where everything was a struggle. Um, yes. And moving, even, moving but, toward an outcome obviously important there too. I mean, that changes yeah. the ex- of what you have to put up with or what you have to experience on that, on that road. Well, I, I, the other thing that I, I think that I, I don't bring to the table here is that every one of my um, workouts or the way that I choose to push myself has a time limit. I know it's going to end. I've never been in chronic pain where I didn't know it was going to end. I didn't know when it was going to stop. And there's a huge difference there. If I, like today, I did three times 20 minutes really hard on my bike. I knew I was looking at my clock. I know it's going to end in 20 minutes. And you can push through that suffering and that pain much more readily than if you're, if you have chronic pain, which to me, those people are mind blowing. I don't know how they do that. (laughs) Yes. And well, I mean, you think that, you know, when we talk about chronic pain, which is its whole another animal and story and, and how that presents is that there are some issues that will resolve as a result of doing good quality therapeutic work and right. so forth. And then there are some types of conditions of chronic pain, which are, are likely to be around for the long run. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that mentality of being able to understand a lot of the things that we're talking about is what helps people get back on the wagon and participate in the activities that they love to do. And with that expectation that there's going to be discomfort, but that's okay. And building Mm -hmm. up that mental toughness and that resilience uh, versus that fear of dealing with pain and stopping them from living the life that they want, which therefore creates more pain on a much deeper level of not being able to do what they want. And I think that that becomes an issue. And that ties back into that, that whole motivation and psychology of pain where with depression or a positive attitude or a negative attitude that is profoundly important here. Like there's days when I just don't feel like hurting and I won't I'm like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to walk home now. And then there's other days where I'm just like fired up and jacked up. And I know that I can go out and really, really push myself very hard. And those I'm the same body, same physiology, just a different mindset. And it's a small tweak. And I think that that's the trick is finding how to get people to reframe it. Um, like Vic, I don't know if this applies, but like Victor Frankl, the man's search for meaning, he talks about putting, giving meaning to suffering. And if you do that, then it's no longer suffering. If, if there's a, a meaningful outcome or if there's a reason for the suffering that can help you to get through it much more, much more easily. So that's very important stuff. And so let's, let's take a tangent here and let's go into the direction of kind of like taking the, some of the material that we talked about so far and starting to, when you work with athletes and you're starting to, to coach and putting people into different categories in which maybe how you address this differently. So let's talk about this concept of neurotyping, which by the way, I've been kind of hounding Christian Thibodeau at some point to try to get on here and to talk about this. (laughs) He's one of my favorite people. It's great stuff. And he's been around. I remember the days of, you know, when he was on testosteronenation.com and reading his articles, but those of you out there, he's a, he's a strength coach. uh, I'd say a fairly prolific writer in the strength training field, but he came up with the concept of neurotyping and, and I'm vaguely familiar with it, but you have real world application of neurotyping while you're doing it, right? Yeah. So talk to us about how, what neurotyping is general speaking and mm-hmm. how you're applying it to the coaching model that you use. Right. So first of all, Christian Thibodeau's parents were scientists, I think psychologists or psychiatrists studying drug addiction. 
Uh, and that's where the first application of that idea that your in neurotyping is neurotransmitters, hormones, and how they control our thought processes and what we what we choose to do. So a, a, a drug addict is very similar to a running addict, or it's it's you're just tweaking the the variable there that 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 gives you that dopamine hit essentially. Um, but he started to apply that over into different types of athletes. And, and it's relatively complicated. He's got three neurotyping groups, type one, type two, and type three. And then type one has a 1A, 1B, type two has a 2A, 2B, and then there's just a type three, which he doesn't really deal with. He even He'll even tell you, he's like, they're not my thing. They're my thing, actually. <laughs> I deal mostly with type threes. But he frames that. He breaks each neurotype down into the the sensitization or the desensitization of neurotransmitters in your brain. And so somebody who is very desensitized to dopamine, which is a majority of kids today because of devices and screen time, um, they need a lot more stimulation in order to get a small dopamine hit. Um, Adrenaline, somebody who's very, very sensitive to adrenaline, which is a type three, they've already got a high level of adrenaline. If you introduce any adrenaline to them, it just overloads them. They just panic. They can actually freeze up. Um, but the, the application for neurotyping, in my opinion, only is useful if for somebody else to analyze you. It's not useful for yourself because <laughs> you know what you want to do and you know what type of training or, or exercise or, or anything makes you happy. And so for an athlete coming to me, if I can know their neurotype, then I can give them workouts that they'll enjoy, first of all, and second, that they'll thrive on. Um, So I have type three athletes who are risk averse, they say, and they're signed up for a hundred mile run, yet they like doing a bunch of this type one stuff, which is usually high risk, um, catastrophic injury is what is ultimately going to happen. and so my job is to make them happy and, and have them enjoy the training all the while giving, making that sometimes not useful training work for their goal. Um, it's a fine balance. I'm not the coach that will say, you have to do it this way. I don't believe that at all. For a hundred mile run, you need to just go run a lot. <laughs> There's no magic to that but I'll have an athlete who likes to lift weights. He likes to be on the track. Um, they like running hard. I'll make that work. I'll, I'll make it work for the hundred. So this is interesting because this kind of dovetails into another topic, which is, okay, so what we're doing is trying to fit, because one of the hardest things in any kind of training as a whole is, is compliance and sticking with mm-hmm. things, right? Yes. And that's going to be based upon someone's kind of neurotype, right? Is how you design a program for them to stick with it and obviously, at the same time, they've got to be able to get results with it. Mm-hmm. And I've, probably the thing is that works the best is the thing that somebody will continue doing. So sticking with that neurotyping uh, idea. And then within that, now we have things where we always get into this discussion and um, any health professional against most disciplines, physical therapy, chiropractic, coaching, training, whatever, will tell you that 
there's what the evidence says, where there's a big evidence-based movement now, which everything should be validated that you do with what the research says and so forth. But then you have over here, you have the purely anecdotal people, which are just like, this works. And yet, you know, science says that doesn't work or whatever. Somewhere, I think most of us who are trying to be as effective as possible uh, are trying to somehow operate in the middle, where we're trying to, to take what the evidence shows us but to try and square it up with what actually works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back up and say, you know, you, what works for hundred mile runs in your world, when it comes to coaching endurance athletes, what do you see in terms of conflicts between what evidence consistently says people sit around, do research all day long and what actually works with athletes that are getting it done. And it works. What do you this is my see? Favorite subject in the world, by the <laughs> way, um, everything begins in the brain, everything. Like I'm going to lift my hand that not that the muscles do that, but ultimately my brain told me to do that. Um, the research that I see, like the physiological research, a lot of it's probably true, but you can't make it work if the athlete doesn't want it to work or if they don't enjoy it. Um, and I, I think that the, the physiology also is there's a big wiggle room in there. So I've read, the researchers decided that the, the physiological limit to an adaptation for running is 90 miles a week. I don't know a single person in my world that, that, that wouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> that's, that's absurd. Um, and then looking at how the, a lot of the research is done. Uh, if it's done on a rat bicep, femoris, and his leg muscle, whatever. <laughs> Like with, with, you know, fast twitch, slow twitch muscle fibers and time to exhaustion and all this stuff um, that, that has applications. And, I, and I'll, I'll look at that and I'll take that into account. But most of the stuff that I give my athletes, <clears throat> if they're out running at mile 80 of a hundred mile run, do they really care what the science is telling them? Do they, is that even applicable in a, in a training cycle? A scientist in a lab coat can tell me that this athlete needs to do this workout every week in order to achieve his goal. Can that athlete do that workout? Do they want to do that workout? And really, does it matter <laughs> if they don't do that workout? You're telling me that they, they might not be as good when I can point to 100 athletes who have never done that workout in their life and are better than the scientist who came up with that idea. And so I think the, the, the beginning point is psychology. If the, if, and this is how I feel about math, mathetone, which we're going to get into, um, on paper, it looks really good, but if you try to apply it to the wrong athlete, it doesn't, it, it's absurd. If, if the athlete isn't going to stick to it or they're going to hate it, then it's going to hurt them. The science will hurt that athlete. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, the main challenge that I see with athletes has very little to do with applying science to them. It has, a, it has everything to do with applying psychology to them. An athlete wakes up in the morning, they've got a long run today. They were up half the night with a sick child. They're left alone. Their husband had to go away on a business trip. Now, what's that science telling me about that long run? <laughs> nothing, yes. that word, nothing that applies. It's, it's ridiculous. So I, I usually tell people that I'll start with the foundation of science and then branch out because there's some foundational concepts. Like don't, don't run 300 miles a week. If you can't handle it, of course, duh. Um, there's some foundational ideas that you use as a basis. Um, and then you branch way out on that, depending on the individual. 
I find that that I, I, I completely no, I completely agree with you. And, and I'll look at things just as simple as, for example, um, I think one thing that really got my thinking around this was uh, dealing with tendonitis issues in particular. Mm. And if you look at some of the things that research says, yep. and in particular, what I find entertaining is eccentric training. So it. let's let's say when somebody's <laughs> got tennis elbow. Yeah. The thing in the research that shows works really well is, is taking a heavy weight and doing just the lowering phase and then lifting it up. Now, my problem with that is that sounds really good. And that works in the research is that when somebody comes in and they have pain in their elbow from tendonitis and you start doing heavy eccentric exercises with them, a lot of times, if that person has a flare up from that, they're going to be really pissed at you because now their elbow hurts more. And yeah. when they try to explain what they were doing to someone else, that person's going to say, you're a moron for giving that to them. And now the person will never come back. They trash you, et cetera. But the research makes sense. And you're doing that by, oh, well, the research says eccentric training works. But in practice, you're like, the thing that I'm going to do is the thing that reduces that nervous system's threat to what I'm doing. And I'm mm -hmm. sure as hell not going to do the most aggressive thing apparently in that person's perception on the first day. So I think that the perception of that is a big key there. Um, I think when, when you're in the world of, of extreme endurance athletes, their perception of risk is much different. Um, and I also think with the eccentric tendon loading, I've only found that to work on a couple of tendons, Achilles and high hamstring tendon. Those, the eccentric works, I've found fairly well with those, but some of the others I wouldn't, I would never do that with. <laughs> Yeah. There's too much risk of it. I mean, and even Absolutely. though there's too much risk in the long run, they still might work, but there's risk mm -hmm. in the, in the psychological element to how the person is perceiving what is going on, unless they, they read the research and they're like, well, research says that you do it with me. I'm cool with that. But that's a perfect example of how all of those factors have to work together in order yeah. to get buy-in and how the person responds to it. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't just do things. So there's a neurotyping element to that. It sounds like too. Sure. Yeah. You get a type one who's willing to do anything, anything. Maybe you want me to do heavy, like 400 pounds eccentric calf load. Okay. They'll love it. But you do that to a type three and they're like, no, they want to do a foam roller, which is gentle and they can feel the mind to muscle connection and yep. all that stuff. Or the person that comes in that says, you know, Sam, I don't care how much this muscle hurts. I just want you to put all your body weight yeah. into it with your elbow <laughs> and smash it the hurt needs to happen for it to get better. And I'm like, Oh, there's that. Yeah. I don't know about that. I don't know if I've I been in that. I've, <laughs> I've, I've bought full in on that years ago that, that in order to, well, that was the 40 hour training weeks. Sure. It's the only way to get better. If, if my competitors are doing 30, I'm going to do 40. Just push through um, it. That's the way to yeah, go. It, it never works. <laughs> so let's switch gears and let's talk about the uh, math training, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Tell us what math is. Uh, I don't think a lot of people actually know what this is. I'm sure in the endurance world, it's far more common, but outside of that, I, I never even heard about it before my wife was talking about it. Yeah. It's a, it's a training methodology that was developed by Dr. Phil Maffetone, um, probably back in the eighties at the advent of the heart rate monitor and being able to take it with you. Um, and he, through, I'm, I'm, I've been using math since 1995 and I still don't know all the details. <laughs> I've never taken the time to read all of his stuff. Um, but there he's come up with this idea that, that 180 heart rate is about where your, what I've always believed was a VO2 max is for a fairly well-trained athlete. 
<clears throat> and you take your age minus 180, and that's going to give you a number that you shouldn't broach in training heart rates. So I'm 50, 180 minus 50 is 130. I would do a majority of my training below 130. Um, now, I think it, most people would, would get to, if you're deconditioned especially, would get to that heart rate just with a light jog. I've dealt with that for 20 years. Um, and there's, and I've changed over the years to being going from strict adherence to the method to, again, it's compliance. Like you get this athlete who's very frustrated that they can't run. I'm supposed to be training them to run a marathon and they are out walking. What's, so what's the, what's the philosophy or the reasoning for keeping the heart rate at such a low level for training? Most of it. So there's two variables in there that, <clears throat> that I cling to. One of them is metabolic economy, where you're burning primarily fat and you're teaching your metabolism to use or prefer fat as fuel. Um, you're pre preserving glycogen. Um, the second one is repeatability. It's so easy that you can do it all the time. And it's a volume-based method where if you have, if you can only run 20 miles a week, you at a certain point you're going to adapt to that stress, which is 20 miles a week at for me, heart rate 130. Eventually that's not going to be enough to force compensation. And so you have to do something which is increased volume. It's the only variable that you have. There's no intensity, um, not until you plateau, but that's a little more advanced. So you have to increase volume and that becomes a real struggle with people working full-time kids, real world stuff. I can't have an athlete who's got an hour a day run hundred miles a week. <laughs> you can't do it. He doesn't have the time. You can't invent, you can't fabricate that. So um, that's where, that's where the, I think part of the problem is, is, is in that um, the, the need to increase volume. Um, the, there's another one where I, I think athletes tend to get very bored of it. There's no variation. The, the only variation and the only motivation comes from improvement. Seeing your pace get faster at that low heart rate. Um, but ultimately, Maffetone's basis for this is health. It's yes. a very health-based methodology that is, is going to be long-term, life-changing, um, has life-changing stuff on it. So I think, and, and to add to that is that the, what I, what I gathered from it as soon as uh, I heard about it from my wife was being able to train at a lower heart rate, mm -hmm. um, to basically build up volume and build up aerobic capacity. But what mm -hmm. I also heard out of that, because it's based upon heart rate and that heart rate is so responsive to so many different things, mm -hmm. your diet, how much stress you have, how much, um, alcohol you consume, all of these different things, caffeine, that it's almost like the concept of where we're at with heart rate variability, which is trying to judge an athlete's training volume or how much they can do based upon how stressed their physiology is. Right. So we're, we're in a society now where people are just constantly exhausted all of the time, overwhelmed and so forth. And then the idea is to go to the gym and then to kick the crap out of yourself because you need to get fit. And we know that for short periods of time, this can work. But the problem is in the long run, you're digging yourself a deeper hole yeah. if you continue to push yourself beyond your ability to recover. So, but I, I get that. And I, I think that for athletes, that can definitely be a frustrating thing. But I think for the average person, there might be a lot of positive application for this. 
and that doing map training will get people to realize that they can get a gain a tremendous amount of, mm. of benefit in terms of health and fitness at training at a low heart rate. It's hard to get a lot of people, especially when they don't have a lot of cardiovascular fitness to go to the gym or to go out and just start getting their heart rate up to the 150, 160 range. It's very unpleasant. A lot of people start getting aches and pains as a result of it. And heck, I mean, I, I've known of people who have tried this method who, like I had mentioned in the beginning, just barely picking up the speed and walking, they're getting their heart rate near to the max. And it's almost surprising to them that they're not even really huffing and puffing and their heart rate is at that level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's ultimately what Dr. Maffetone really sought out was, was a method that would be for the masses in terms of general health. He was unlucky maybe <laughs> enough that Mark Allen, six time Ironman Hawaii winner, adopted his method and it worked incredibly well. And so that's where the athlete mentality latched on to that, where I don't know, I've never heard him say it, but I'm guessing that Maffetone probably would have been better off if Mark Allen had never tried it. <laughs> it got the word out, but it did get the word out in that niche group of triathletes. Um, most runners don't know about math. It's a, it's a very triathlon centric methodology. More and more runners are, but um, yeah. It seems as also if, if almost in every you know uh, kind of training discipline. I mean, I, I I've read a lot and spent a lot most of my time learning about strength training and bodybuilding in particular mm -hmm. because that's a culture I had been around a lot, which was everything seems to work sometimes in particular with athletes that are very ritualistically sticking to one style of training yeah. and they never try anything else. There's a strength coach. His name was Charles Poliquin. He was a, oh, a yeah. colleague of yeah, He's a awesome. colleague of Thibodeau's which he was always in a constant argument for years with a bodybuilder named Mike Menser, who was all about one set to failure. You know, it was mm -hmm. the old Arthur Jones Nautilus training idea, which muscle really only needed to be hit once. And, you know, with a heavy aggressive set and a very, very intense set to trigger adaptation. But Charles would always I mean, he'd say, you know, all these stories about these bodybuilders that would achieve tremendous results from this. And Charles would always laugh at this and say, I could get one set to failure to work with any elite bodybuilder. And the reason why is not because the system works. It's because every elite bodybuilder is heinously overtraining. Yeah. So if you put them on a one set to failure routine for three to four weeks, a lot of them gain muscle mass because you're giving them a break. Um, yeah, it's periodization. It, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, it's a simple periodization. But it was the problem, of course, being and the idea is that bodybuilders were so militant about one way of training that when you throw in something else to them, um, it would oftentimes break it up and it, it would give them um, a, a positive result, but not for the reasoning that the original right. method said. But so everything and training rotation and so forth. I think people are getting more wise to this, hopefully. Um, that different styles of training, when you mix them up, uh, actually can be very helpful, but yeah. only for short periods of time. And that is the challenge with periodization, isn't it? Which is, you know, um, accommodation to different ranges of training. And that can be a problem. I mean, my body has a very poor time responding to this. For example, if I'm always in a certain repetition range of training, eight to 10, if I keep doing sets of eight to 10, my strength will slowly be increasing over time. But if I do a periodization where I do eight to 10 reps, but then for a couple of weeks, I go, let's say 12 to 15 reps. And then when I go back down, I'm now weak at eight to 10 again. Mm -hmm. So I can't seem to kind of keep my body with, I mean, in order to do something, I have to train in that range constantly. I definitely need to do other things, but the variety needs to be far less of a swing. 
And it seems like some people can tolerate a much wider uh, range of variation without losing that, that, that primary zone that they need to improve. Do you find that a lot with athletes? Um, I mean, endurance athletes and weight training has minimal crossover. Um, with like a typical week for an athlete within 20 weeks of their a race they're doing multiple types of training multiple types of intensity so they're doing long easy threshold vo2 maybe some speed work so it's never never really an issue there and that's one of the goals is you other than the base period which is when you're just building that athlete up to be able to handle the training that's coming in that period, you're kind of sticking to one type, but once you get into the meat of the training, it's, it's so varied and mixed up that you're trying, you, because you're trying very hard to not lose that, what, what you lost, right? Let's yeah. say it's threshold. Like you, you do, you want to hold on to your threshold and work your muscular endurance or your VO2. And you have to juggle all three of those. Um, and so I don't, I don't see that. So, and within that, and that, that's enough to, to juggle and to deal with Mm -hmm. right there now. And of course, in my world, a lot of times people are coming to me who are athletes who are, you know, being coached, they're doing their thing, but then I have to deal with cleanup, you know, back Mm -hmm. issues, back issues, hip issues, all of these kind of musculoskeletal things Mm -hmm. in the middle of this. And to try to figure out what's the minimum effective dosage of some of these things that I need to do. Now, of course, that's another big argument is this concept concept of cross training, like, and you mentioned it in terms of weight training, mm-hmm. there are certain things that need to be done over here laterally, mobility work, mm-hmm. uh, strength training. What are the things that you find in terms of that? Okay. You may not need a lot of weight training, but there are things that you need. What are the things that you find that you've got to keep in athletes programs in order to keep them healthy and functioning as well as they need to be? Um, the number one thing is knowing when to cut them off. Um, I, I have what I call good math where you can either take two days off or two weeks off. Simple as that. So I am super cautious with an athlete. I have an athlete right now who went for a run and a tendon in her ankle flared up a little bit. It's two days off. No, no questions. Don't, don't argue. (laughs) She might be doing secret training on her own, but Um, and I tell her it's good math. Like we can, we can have you run through this ankle, whatever it is, just like some pissed off tendon. And then, you know, down the line, you're going to have to take maybe a week or two weeks off now. And so she, she's on her second day. It's feeling really good. Um, I'll have her run tomorrow. And that's the number one is listening to the athlete, listening to the feedback. Um, and I tell them up front, you got to be honest with me. (laughs) If, If anything hurts, and I'm, I'm a real stickler on certain muscle groups for runners. It's hamstrings, you know, hamstrings. And then let's go down to your Achilles. Those two tend to be the big ones. Um, and hips for sure. Anything in the hip area. Well, what do we um, have to do to keep the hamstrings healthy, stretching them, exercising them? What are the recommendations? I'm not a big stretcher. Um, I'm more of a eccentric strength type guy, um, single leg or double leg RDLs um, glute bridges, anything like that. Because when you look at the stance phase of a run, your foot hits right before it hits, there's actually a pretensing of the hamstring muscle. And then once you hit, it's an eccentric and isometric contraction, um, leg curls. I used to love leg curls. I could do like a hundred I could do 10 reps of 110 pounds on one leg as a little guy. 
I was so proud of that until I realized that that concentric hamstring curls are the most useless thing in the world. They're they're yeah. absurd. Um, and we find that it works well for remedial exercise to start yeah. rehabilitation. Yeah. But the problem, of course, being is that what the, the function you're trying to carry over into is the heel strike and, and yeah. eccentric deceleration of the knee yeah. with a quick transition and two ends of the hamstring that have to work. Yeah. What's the what's the proximal component doing while the distal is working? So we yeah. start to get this, you got a strong, dumb muscle. And yeah. I guess I guess that's not that strong though as a group they're strong but individually they're pretty weak yes um but i think you know slow build up um strength training i love lunges i I feel like that that's a hamstring exercise by the way um slow build up making sure that if there's any tightness and i will write it a million times if you feel any tightness in your hamstrings do not go fast like you can go easy but any type of extension or stretching of that hamstring under load is, is not a good thing um, and that's where it begins is just knowing when to stop. But the, like the, most of my athletes don't really have a regimented weight training program. It doesn't generally fit very well. Um, and so you, you have to, there has to be some give and take. You have to kind of let some stuff slide. I would love to have every athlete lifting six hours a week. Can't do it. <laughs> it's impossible. And it sounds they're like not, a, if they're doing math too, not, definitely not possible. Yeah. And it's not. I mean, I, I'm a fan of mixing math with a heavy strength training program. Interesting. Those two, because once you get into hard running, it definitely doesn't fit there. <laughs> so you're a runner first and weight training, heavy weight training doesn't affect your slow pace as much as going to the track and running intervals. Like you kind of got to be on for those. And if you've lifted heavy the day before, it's just probably not going to happen very well. Um, but I'm also not a fan of heavy lifting for endurance athletes. I, I think it's, the risk versus reward is too high. Yes. And if there's an athlete who is extremely good with their movement and they have a, a very good long history of injury-free quality lifting, then I'll have them lift heavy. The majority of athletes, however, um, don't have that. And secondly, how strong do you need to be to reach your goal? So if you're going to run a marathon, Kipchoge ran 159 off of no weight, off of very little weight training. He's not a strong guy. He's not, I can, I can out back squat that guy all day. He can run a 159 marathon. So do you need to go to the weight room and get your squat max up to 1.5 times your body weight to run a marathon? Probably not. So what I look for is smaller body weight type movements, monster walks or band. I love, love the band around the knees, the power bands, step ups, lunges, burpees, all this stuff that is going to give you a more balanced, low risk approach. Um, that's going to mesh a little bit better with running. And and that's part of, first of all, strength coaches will, you know, be reeling at your statements there because that's you know, the research that's research. Again, that's the science of strength training that I don't think applies at all to a marathon runner. Yes. And that that's the big argument. And the, the, the reality is, is that it's what adaptations. And I think that where that gets mixed up is, that when, again, repetitively athletes are doing certain things and they need to have a novel source of stimuli, mm-hmm. then strength training can do that, but at what cost, right? So you're right. I mean, looking at things like, for example, just doing mobility drills and doing activities that mm-hmm. like that are more spinal rotation oriented yeah, when you're definitely. doing more of a sagittal plane activity mm-hmm. for high mileage, is it really 
you know, do we have to load that stuff or do we just need to entertain those motions to just keep them active so that the joints uh, will maintain their mobility and try playing our activity? Is that really what matters? And again, the results speak for themselves. If you've got athletes that are performing well, that have very low injuries just by modulating their mm -hmm. training volume, then the question is, is all of that stuff really necessary in order to get them yeah. to stay healthy? I think it could be as long as you begin with a very low load basic movement. Like let's just use lunges. Give an athlete 10 lunges. They might probably going to, most of them athletes are going to be sore the next day. <laughs> yes. but you, build, you build that up and you build that up over six weeks or four weeks or whatever and no injury they're no longer challenged. Then maybe we can start loading. I would actually personally increase rep rep schemes. Um, but maybe let's do some dumbbells. Let's hold some dumbbells. And if that goes well, and I, in most of my athletes, I work with for years at a time, eventually down the line, we might be in the weight room loading, but yes. it's, but I, I, I don't do back squats. I'm a good back squatter. I have really good form and it just messes with my knees and my hips every yeah. time. And right. I'm, I'm like, well, okay, so I can squat 200 pounds now but my back is jacked up and I'm, my hips suck and I feel terrible. So is that really the science would say that that's what I got to do yet? I'm, I can't, I'm going to get hurt doing that. So instead I'll do Bulgarian split squats, which are beautiful for me. My, yes. my, my leg ratios and everything it's, it works really well. And I can load those super heavy now. Well, and then you're also, great. you're also not allowed to load your Bulgarians until you can balance yourself doing them. I do them so in the TRX. Yeah. So you get a little bit of yeah. help. Are you familiar with the strength coach named Ian King? No. He was one of those guys that was around. He was Poliquin and, and Ian King. And Ian King's an Australian strength coach, worked with a lot of uh, rugby teams down there. And he was making waves a long time ago, I don't know, 30 years ago, when he was talking about, you know, don't give athletes in particular, you know, I don't, I don't want to directly quote him in case this isn't exactly what he says, but the point was doing single leg balancing, which is left and right side asymmetry based training. You'll get a lot of mileage out of just getting athletes to, to start doing single leg based activities mm -hmm. to bring up the ratio between each side before you even start doing bilateral stuff yeah. with them, because it's more important. You know, again, yeah. rather than this one rep max mentality, you know, it's more important for what's better an athlete that can uh, do a 300 pound back squat or athletes that can do 15 to 20 repetitions on a Bulgarian split squat with good balance on each side. Yeah. Um, in yeah. your sports, I think it's obvious which one is going to have more value. I think I think that isometrics can slip into that as well. Like long hold Bulgarian split squat isometrically. Like if you want to correct balance imbalances or, or note imbalances, I think those are effective as well. Like three, four minute isometrics. Which uh, is, uh, talk about it, that works. Chemistry. That, yeah, that works with you, for you is that sounds like an yeah. awful degree of suffering, oh, which awesome. I'm sure you're down for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do. A, I do one workout where I'm either running or biking and I jump off the bike and I do 15 minutes of isometric wall sets. But when you break, <laughs> You don't do them straight, but if you have to break, you do burpees. So <laughs> you do, I think you do 20 burpees is the last time I did it. So you, you 15 minutes total of wall sets. And then if you break your, your punishment is, is 20 burpees. And you got to do, one. well, you put an add in, do them in a sauna with yeah. uh, blood pressure, with blood pressure cuffs, occlusion cuffs around your upper thighs. So that'll but add to another balance. Speaking of the sauna, if you want to really test that mental 
the, the central governor. This sauna is the absolute best way to do that. Passive, just sit in there until you, you'll go through all stages of, of mental terror, I call it. So <clears throat> sit in a 200 degree sauna for an hour and you'll go through some stuff. I've had, I've had a few instances of that where sometimes I can stay in there for 15, 20 minutes. And sometimes after three minutes, the internal pissing and moaning is just so overwhelming. I got incredible. Leave. It's so, incredible. Oh yeah. 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 All right. So we're kind of getting upon the hour here. Yeah. And I think we can keep going forever here talking oh, yeah. about this stuff. It's in so many different areas. Um, I just want to get a rapid fire question here. One item is oh. what's your favorite therapy to do uh, for people? I mean, everybody has their pick, you know, chiropractic, massage therapy, mm -hmm. you know, what do you use? What do you like the most? Whatever works for them. <laughs> um, like I, I know people who don't believe in chiropractic. I personally yep. love it. Yep. I love chiropractic. Um, the Probably the one that I would, I would say actually more to avoid certain things, like going to your general practitioner for knee pain or yep. whatever. <laughs> But I, whatever works, I've never, unfortunately, not being injured very much. I don't have a lot of experience with, with too many. I know that massage, deep tissue massage does not work for me. I hate it. Interesting. I hate deep tissue massage for me personally. Yep. <laughs> so if an athlete wants to do that, and as long as they continue to do it regularly, go for it. The one-off deep tissue where the guy's just reefing in you is probably going to end up bad. So, so, and that's something that's a, that's a really good point for people also to understand. So again, you know, massage is probably the thing that has the greatest degree of utility, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just massaging muscles, getting blood flow, et cetera. And as long as you've been doing this, yeah. how many races you've run, you don't like doing massage therapy. It has not hindered your success. And that's another thing. Let's avoid yeah. those generalizations out there, everybody. Yeah. You know, well, chiropractic works for you. I'm a grass stand guy. Grass I'm a scraper. Scraper. I love scraping. I've I hate own, it. I don't like that feeling. And I, oh, I go super hard. I've got this really long massage tool, a scraping tool that you can hold with both hands and just like, just I have that one. Crush your calves. Oh, yeah. And see the irony there of not liking the deep tissue massage, but like being <laughs> scraped with metal bars. So gotta do, the fascia is a tough, tough thing. You got to break up the fascia stuff and it's hard to do. You got to hurt. <laughs> See, okay. I think we clearly have a perfect demonstration of neurotyping out here, ladies and gentlemen, swing all the way back to the beginning. And you see how that makes the difference. Don't do things you hate, uh, do the things that work for you. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the message that I always love to hear is that like nothing is canned in every single case, mm -hmm. something works. Does it work with people who, who understand from a bigger frame of reference that there's variations and in individual needs and, and adapt to things that work for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the take home message, I think, always. And I love to hear that constantly reinforced. <laughs> All right. So uh, what we're, why we do here is to follow up soon. Those of you, let us know. What's the podcast? Tell everybody because they got to listen. What is your podcast? Oh, mine. I'm sorry. Yes. I, I, I didn't. I was zoned out there. Um, Endurance Planet. Uh, it's ask the coaches. So you you send in a question and me and my partner answer it. And my you podcast are. partner. And you are a ton of episodes deep. How many have you done, by the way? Some 350, maybe. It's been almost 10 years. Um, yeah. So a treasure trove of information in there. And uh, where? Mm. where yeah. <laughs> the, the, the beginning ones don't. I would start listening about 200 in because I, I, I was not good at the beginning. <laughs> Getting your bearings in. Um, yeah. All right. So podcast, best way to follow. You have a website that we can find you at, too? No. No, no. website. So podcast is the way to go. Yeah, I've got, I'm a little bit active on Instagram. 
Um, and I don't know my, I don't, honestly, I don't know my Instagram thing. I, I don't like social media. I will, I will find it for you and I'll post it in there in case people uh, seem to want to follow you, but listening Nicole to the podcast, me. she does. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll scan it. I'll scan it in from her side. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for having you here. Um, a lot of things here in the show notes, we covered a bunch of stuff and at some point I'll have you come back again. I'm sure we're going to have a ton of, ton of questions about this stuff and we'll delve in deeper to all of this stuff and, and provide some more value for the listeners. I look forward to it. Thank you, Sam. Awesome. All right, Tim. Thanks.